Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lynn Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, August 15th, 2022. On the show today, news, listener questions, and a universal survey about a new seasonal music festival. Then in our main segment, Jim continues the history of Epcot's Millennium Celebration. Let's get started by bringing in the man who sees the colors raw umber and burnt umber and wonders why nobody at the Crayola factory knows how to cook umber. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Just for those of you who don't know, folks, raw umber is a natural pigment that is traditionally dark yellowish brown in color, Len, whereas sure. burnt umber is dark brown. Uh, again, Almost black, yeah. Makes me wonder, though, how did we settle on what color we'd call umber when the color our faces make when we take umbrage? That's more of a red purple, isn't it? Yeah. Len? Yeah, you would think you'd be you'd be upset with umbrage. Yeah, you're you think there'd be more more uh, more red involved. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, if it's brown, yellow, or dark brown, I think I took umbrage and then went straight into death. <laughs> I took umbrage and then passed out. There we go. <laughs> Seems a bit extreme. <laughs> All right, Jim. Let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers E Harkler, Matt Bermused, and Gina Aiken. Hey, Gina. And longtime subscribers Robert Orth, Isaac Durand, and Eric Vanderpoel. Jim, these are Disney's talent agents responsible for signing up characters to visit Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party, which started last Friday. They say that Jack Skellington and Sally are absolute delights to work with. Rock and Roll Stitch buys the cast banana and peanut butter sandwiches for opening night. And that Zoom calls with the Headless Horseman are surprisingly not awkward at all. True story. I hear eye contact might be an issue. <laughs> you know, you just keep the cameras off and it's fine. Okay. All right, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Just as a quick reminder, we're doing a live podcast recording on December 2nd, part of our Gingerbread Challenge weekend. Tickets are available at touringplans.com slash 2022 disney Dash dish dash TP. All right, Jim, uh, most recent news on Disney's most recent quarterly earnings call, which was last Wednesday. They had a couple of highlights related to the parks, the uh, Disney Parks Experiences and Products Division revenues for the quarter increased to $7.4 billion as compared to $4.3 billion the prior quarter. Uh, and that guest spending growth, this is a quote, is mm-hmm. due to an increase in average per capita ticket revenue and higher average daily hotel room rates. The increase in average per capita ticket revenue was due to the introduction of Genie Plus and Lightning Lane in the first quarter of the current fiscal year and a reduced impact from promotions at the Walt Disney World Resort, partially offset by, and I'm quoting here again, an unfavorable attendance mix at the Disneyland Resort. Jim, what do they mean by unfavorable attendance mix? Well, you know those annual pass holders. Those pesky, pesky, most loyal of our fans. That's right. The, the ones that, you know, how dare they? They stop at uh, In-N-Out Burger on their way to the park and get a meal. Or the ones who know with the outlet mall that has the Disney scuff gets dropped. And it just, it's at moments like this where you just kind of like, Mr. Chapek, you said the quiet part out loud again. Michael Eisner and, and Bob Iger made such an effort to engage the annual pass holders. Right, the, the most loyal fans. I mean, they started things like D23, right? Which yeah, is basically a, a yeah. huge fan event. Yeah. And Mr. Chapek is really looking for those folks 
who haven't been to the park previously, who open up their wallet and it's like, well, sure, okay, I guess I got to pay for Lightning Lane or, well, sure, I got to buy the $65 sweatshirt. I just get concerned that so much of what Disney is doing these days is all about, I mean, look at the language here compared to last quarter. It's this whole notion of we're doing fine. Look at the spreadsheet. We're doing fine. But it's not about the conversations that are happening at home. Like, yeah, we went to Disneyland. Oh my God, how much it costs to get in and, you know, and all of that. You mentioned that and it's funny because that's the same thing I picked up on too. In fact, I was chatting with some Wall Street analysts after the Mm -hmm. call my question was like, why does nobody ask about the guest satisfaction surveys mm-hmm. for these things? Because if you're eating your seed corn, which is what I think, mm-hmm. you know, the park reservation system and Genie Plus are doing, what does that what does that mean three to five years from now? Well, it's kind of ironic that we're recording this just after Len and I have recorded a, a new Bandcamp show uh, where we were talking about Epic Universe, which can, of course, has a Super Mario Land, which, by the way, opens just next summer at Universal Studios Hollywood. Disney really needs to sort of lift its eyes up and realize what's going on around it. Mm. Its competition is getting that much smarter, that much fleeter on its feet. And this whole notion of we're fine. Look at the money we're making off a of lightning light. We're fine. One of the things that I love about the uh, these comments is that, um, you know, you and I have talked before about how the, uh, the Disney Genie app, not mm-hmm. the fast pass replacement, but the itinerary planning app is basically an upselling machine, not an mm-hmm. itinerary planning. Thing. No, 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 and, not at all. And Bob Chapek's comments actually referring to Genie mm-hmm. as an upselling machine confirmed that. Yeah. Because what he says is basically the Genie app is a gateway into people buying Genie Plus. Mm-hmm. Not, didn't, didn't mention anything at all about, you know, shortening wait times, getting to see more attractions. The, the entire comment was on, uh, or guest satisfaction. The entire thing was on, this is how much revenue this thing's generating us. Remember when we used to joke about how Disney magic wishes, imagine, don't you yeah. long for those days when Iger or Eisner, that's how they talk about the parks? As yeah, I mean, I, you know, at, at this rate, I expect the next uh, Disney ship to be named favorable attendance mix. <laughs> Intent to visit. There we go. Exactly. The SS intent to visit. There we go. The DCL increased margins. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right. Some other, uh, some other comments um, from the earnings call. Attendance at domestic parks is now just slightly below 2019 levels. Um, international attendance for the U.S. parks is still down, but basically it's starting back from zero, so it's doing okay. The uh, the one interesting thing that they uh, they actually said on the call, Jim, and I didn't know this mm-hmm. as a fact before, was that traditionally international attendance for U.S. parks is somewhere between seventeen percent and the low twenties. So a fifth a fifth of guests. Yeah, but we've talked about those folks from the U.K. who come over yeah. and spend that month. Yeah, they love them. Yeah, and and those the when we when we talk about favorable or unfavorable attendance mixes, we definitely think that Disney thinks of international guests as favorable because they're going to come, they're going to spend you know two three weeks here, mm-hmm. staying on site, eating food, going on rides, stuff like that. One thing, did you notice this that uh, Bob Chapek said that, and, and I think I, I read this correctly. Tell me if I'm mm-hmm. wrong. CapEx spending is, uh, for the f- fiscal year 2022 was being cut by half a billion to five billion dollars. And Bob Chapek said that that was due to timing shifts in various projects. And so the way I read that was that some things that were supposed to be done by October 1st, which is the the start of Disney's fiscal 2023, 
um, gets shifted to after October 1st? Remember, we've seen a mutation of the World Celebration Plan. I mean, we, oh, we right, had right. our Island in the Sky Pavilion, which is now mutated as opposed to a three-story tall festival center. That money has now been reallocated for a new performance venue that will supplement the American Gardens Theater. We were going to do that. We're now going to do this, but required drawing up new plans and you know all got new survey work and all that. So uh, yes, it's the same money. It's just moved to different fiscal years. And then based on the overall comments about around the earnings call for the parks and the thing about the international travel coming mm-hmm. back, plus the class action lawsuit in Disneyland related to their Magic mm-hmm. Key annual passes, would you be surprised, Jim, if we see? large scale annual pass sales come back anytime soon? I would be very surprised, though I was interested to see that comment in there. If they saw ticket sales, admission sales, attendance levels below where they wanted them, Mm. that they would pivot to, did we say that was a blackout date? Come in. There are lots of arrows in Disney's quiver. And I I think they, along with everybody else, are, are kind of heartened by the news lately that maybe there's a recession coming, but maybe it's a different sort of recession given what's going on with gas prices and what's going on in the job market. Mm -hmm. But they still want to be able to be adaptable if suddenly people aren't coming to the parks and you suddenly need to get your, you know, hey, annual pass. So remember how I used to love you? I love you again. Yeah, that's the thing. Once you, um, uh, you know, you can give, you can sell annual passes and mm-hmm. then give people blackout dates. But if you're going to say like two days before, or three days before, oh, by the way, you can come into the park. A lot of people will have made plans. This is true. So this you need to get true. a little more noticed. It, it, it's going to be interesting to see how they balance it out. My sense is we're not going to see a very wide annual pass sales anytime soon. They might they might segment it out and say, you know, hey, Steve or Sally, you've been an annual pass holder six of the last seven years. How about a, you know, an annual pass now? But I really think they need to get the class action lawsuit fixed because until they figure out how to define blackout days or availability or things like that, and until they know how to define those better so that people mm-hmm. understand what they're purchasing and more importantly, what, what, what they can end up not getting, I think they need to do that firsthand. Absolutely. But again, it's important to remember that this attitude comes from the top down. JPEG just has yeah. decided annual pass holders aren't spending the way we want. We have to pivot back to the actual guests, which that's the sort of language that's used. The people with the real wallets, that just makes me crazy. Yeah, not a uh, not a great uh, word choice selection. That's right. And you know, speaking of the uh, Disney earnings call, uh, Gene sent in a survey uh, mm-hmm. with questions related to this, and I want to tie it in. One of the questions uh, on the survey that you got was, how likely are you to use Disney Genie on a future visit? So the uh, options were definitely will, probably will, may or may not, probably will not, and definitely will not. And Gene selected definitely will not. And then the next question was, how likely are you to purchase Disney Genie Plus and or individual lightning late on a future visit? And uh, the answers again were definitely will, probably will, may or may not, probably will not, and definitely will not. And Gene selected definitely will not for both of them. And again, this is the thing that I that I'm I'm trying to to reconcile in my head, right? Yeah, they're doing really well with earnings, mm-hmm. but people hate paying the money. Mm-hmm. And it's like, is the is the attitude of management like we're just going to take this money, and three years from now, people will get used to the fact that they have to pay more for it, or is it like we'll figure out that problem three years from now when some of us will be on to other jobs? Like, I just don't I just don't get that. I mean, the alternative explanation is that, you know, Disney surveys are vastly different than the surveys that we're, we're getting being sent. 
I honestly think it's the latter lens. Disney used to be a company of lifers. It's not that anymore. You know, that people do their time at Disney and on their way to Nike or Apple or they're building a resume and they move on. Right. And the notion of I did my job for this quarter, I found money, which pleased my boss, which pleased his boss. And everybody's happy except yeah. the customers who were home telling friends and family about yeah. how but much it cost. <laughs> Yeah. And that's not my problem. Right? Yeah, exactly. No, that's exactly. In three years, I'll be at Nike and I'll be reading about this in the Wall Street Journal where they're trying to talk Bob Chapek in off a ledge. The uh, two other questions that uh, Jean sent in from her survey, which of the following best describes your experience writing Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind? I wrote it successfully without any issues. I wrote it successfully, but some show elements did not appear to be working. I wrote it successfully, but the ride was interrupted while we were on it. I wrote it successfully, but the ride was interrupted while we were on it, and some show elements did not appear to be working, or we were evacuated and had to exit the ride before it was over. And Jean wrote, uh, or Jean responded that she was interrupted while they were on the ride. How startling do you find the survey? Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Ruin opened in May. We are June, July, yeah. August, three months after this open. And the other interesting thing is it's it's... You know, if you look at the downtime reports, it's one of the more reliable rides in Epcot. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if they're if they're using this to link to other satisfaction things, like people who rode Guardians of the Galaxy and had the ride interrupted, mm-hmm. also showed you know this many points lower satisfaction mm-hmm. around these other elements of their visit. Like, I wonder, I wonder if they're trying to link those two things together. Could it be that Guardians will eventually become this theme park's? Expedition Everest, where you have a lot of effects, you have your spinning ride vehicle, but on the other hand, it's a roller coaster in the dark. Yeah. And so if some elements don't work and some elements are expensive to repair and that sort of thing, it's like, they're still having a good time. Don't worry about it. I just wonder what Rocket and Groot are in B mode. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking uh, uh, Disco Terry Cruise is, a, uh, <laughs> is, is now a t-shirt that I need to have made. Okay. All right. Uh, last question that Gene got was, which, if any of the following technical issues, did you experience while trying to use the following? And uh, this was for the Disney My Experience app. Excessive spinner time or slow page loads. App froze, crashed, or closed unexpectedly. Connectivity issues with cellular network. App caused excessive battery drain. Frequent login requests. Connectivity issues with Wi-Fi. Issues linking reservations, error messages, or other. And Gene had picked uh, excessive spinner time. App froze. Connectivity issues, app causes excessive battery drain, frequent login requests, and connectivity issues with Wi-Fi. So the holy triumvirate of, uh, of app issues there. Wow. I don't know who is writing these incredibly blunt, honest surveys lately at Disney, yeah. but, but God, I applaud of us in jeans. Tell us There we go. Yeah. Okay. Wow. All right. And then uh, Aaron sent mm-hmm. in a survey that he got from Universal mm-hmm. um, with a couple of interesting questions related to a potential new music festival. And the question, first question goes like this. Imagine that Universal was considering a partnership with one or more of these brands. Mm-hmm. Using the scale below, please indicate your opinion on each brand's potential partnership with Universal. And the three options are, um, this brand would be a good fit mm-hmm. for a partnership with Universal. I don't have an opinion about this partnership. And this brand should not partner with Universal. So the first one is Hard Rock Live. Mm-hmm. The second one is Grand Ole Opry, which I thought was interesting. Third one is House of Blues, which is probably the most interesting because they're already at Disney Springs. There you go. 
Mm-hmm. Fourth is Red Rocks Amphitheater, which I've never been to, but I heard is lovely. Mm-hmm. The next is Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I, I necessarily think of Madison Square Garden as a brand. No. I think of it like, as like Philadelphia. It's like a, it's like a location, not a. <laughs> there we go. There we yeah, go. It's, no, a, no. it's a, it's a place where different things happen. It's not a. Mm. It's not a brand like the Grand Old Opera. Like if you ask me like what goes on at the Grand Old Opera, I think the oh, yeah. default answer is country music, right? Mm-hmm. What goes on at Madison Square Garden? Mm-hmm. I mean, things. And, it, and that's different than like Red Rocks Amphitheater or House of Blues or Hard Rock Live, which you could all say are, you know, rock and roll venues or whatever music venues. Oh, sure, 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 sure. And the last one, and I haven't heard of this. What's the Ryman? Oh, the Ryman is where the Grand Old Opry was originally based. It's this oh, wonderful, goodness. classic performance venue. I mean, I don't know if you saw the the wonderful Ken Burns country music documentary series where they talked about how so much history happened at the Ryman. Hmm. So from this list, which immediately leaves out, it, it, Grand Old Opry and the Ryman. And, and more to the point, thinking about everything else that's staged at theme parks in and around Orlando, it's like, that's unique. That's new. It's funny that you mentioned that because the uh, the next question goes into more detail about the potential partnership. And it says this. Mm-hmm. Next, would like to show you a description of a potential new event that could be held at Universal mm-hmm. Orlando Resort. Mm-hmm. And here's the description. Celebrate country music at the best place oh. to do so outside of Nashville, Universal mm-hmm. Orlando Resort. Mm-hmm. Presented by Opry Entertainment and Universal Orlando, this three-day experience features headline concerts from some of the biggest stars in entertainment from country to Christian rock, performances from up-and-coming talent, Q&A sessions, panels, demonstrations, and more, plus access to all the rides and attractions at Universal Orlando's three theme parks. Access to this event will be included with regular theme park admission. And based on this description, how interested would you be in attending this event? So very interested, and mm-hmm. so on and down. So that's that's a really specific offering here. Three-day experience, That is, if you think about everything that goes on in Orlando, the fact that this is where they settled and right out of the box, this has a distinct look, a distinct flavor. It's like, this is the route they're going. This is a really smart play. And to even suggest that this is tied to the Grand Old Opry or the Ryman, it's like, holy cow. So a couple of things that surprised me. Number one, that they specifically focused on country music because Disney doesn't really do country music. Right. If you look at if you look at the lineups that they have for their for their festivals, I mean, there's some country acts in there. Oh, but yeah. It, it's not centric to mm-hmm. that style of music. Right. Yeah. The other thing I think that was surprising was three days only. I mean, if this was Disney, it'd be a, a month long festival. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if they start off at three days to see how it works, but then go to, you know, they could do Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday for a month. Oh, yeah. To bring people in. This could entirely follow their Mardi Gras playbook. They've got Halloween Horror Nights. They've got their yeah. Christmas event. They've got Mardi Gras. You know, where would you drop this? You know, where in the, the Universal calendar would this go? But we're just talking about Universal Studios Florida as their performance venue. There is another park, Islands Adventure, which has that amazing, you know, in the Toon Lagoon area. They have a giant amphitheater that has just stood empty forever and then of course a couple years down the line there is that that other park just up the street so it's true they'll need entertainment for that i'm thinking Mm -hmm. like january february which is when disney runs its festival of the arts at epcot would be a time because universal doesn't have like a a marathon in january or anything Mm -hmm. like that right they could do january february they could also do may june 
All good choices. Oh, I love theme park chess. <laughs> I want to see this piece move into place and see what happens. All right, we have time for uh, one quick listener question. This one's from Dom. He says, uh, in last week's episode, in response to a listener question about whether Disney would bring a Mr. Toad ride back to Epcot, you mentioned mm-hmm. that current leadership would have to see significant sales in merch mm-hmm. before committing a space in the parks to an IP. If merchandise is the metric by which Disney determines whether a ride should be developed, where's the journey into imagination redo? <laughs> all the Epcot Festival merch has figments slapped all over it, and then there's the popcorn bucket. That's a good point. I mean, they have, Jim, we're on the third version of the Imagination Pavilion. Is there an appetite for a fourth? Do we talk now about that slide you shared with me lo those many months ago, which, now mind you, this is the five-year, six-year plan for Epcot circa 2017, right? Yeah, we can talk about it. Go ahead, good. It was close to a quarter of a billion dollar redo yeah. of imagination, right? With a considerable chunk of that going for the ride, but also... With Figment to bring back Dream uh, Dreamfinder, everything. Yeah. You know, everything else. And also redoing the 3D movie with the Inside Out characters. The notion was return the classic ride, but also bring in a brand new IP so we can promote that for the park. Because again, that's Mr. Chapek. He wants the modern Disney IP represented inside of the park. So that was the plan as of 2017. I don't know what to tell you about what's happening now. Amazing. They know there is a love for Figment, and and they are perfectly happy to capitalize on it. Right, selling the popcorn buckets and slapping existing uh, intellectual property on the... uh... But just because they move an awful lot of Orange Bird stuff as well does not mean that the Orange Bird ride, we're five minutes out from that. I mean, that's not going to happen. I mean, just because merch sells in the park, and that is taken into consideration, it's not the end-all and be-all. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the thing they're looking for there is what would the incremental sales be mm. of a redo? Not, so if they're, you know, it, and I'm making up a number here, if they're doing 50 million in Figment already, mm-hmm. would they do mm-hmm. enough in incremental revenue in order to, uh, to make up for the imagination ride? And then yeah, the other thing is like, is that the ride that needs the most love mm. in future world? I mean, for me, it would be like, what, when are we replacing Mission Space? You're definitely onto something there. I think another issue that I have repeatedly heard from Imagineers is that the thing about Journey into Imagination, think about it, you know, when they did the redo Mm -hmm. and they simplified the track, they actually lowered the hourly capacity to the thing. What's the hourly ride through for Figment? It's a thousand, twelve hundred. Yeah, I was going to say twelve hundred. Yeah. And that's if that's if completely full, which it's not. No, no. But it's just the whole notion of, okay, if you throw a quarter of a billion dollars at fixing that pavilion, but you still only have 1,200 people go through an hour, yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, it's not a great use of, uh, not a great use of, of money or capacity. No, that's it exactly. So. And frankly, I don't know that they're, uh, that they're willing to put more money into Epcot right now. I think the next park that gets the, uh, the money would be uh, Animal Kingdom, probably. You are not wrong. The Lazy Susan spins. And, and Epcot has gotten a lot of attention. There's a lot of stuff that, I mean, Moana, Journey of Water, that's still going on. And we, we still have the performance venue we were just talking about, Dreamers Point and all that. It's hard to look at Epcot and say, oh, you know, it needs more love. It needs more attention. It's like you've had a billion dollars worth of attention. It's time yeah, fin- for finish, else. Yeah. Fin- yeah, finish the uh, projects you've got, and then we'll see where we are from there. There you go. So. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim continues the history of Epcot's Millennium Celebration. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. 
There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or by taking a power nap. Just so you know, I'm really good at that last one. But you know what else helps support a healthy brain? BetterHelp Online Therapy. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's also much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Look, anyone who's been on this planet for the past two and a half years or so knows that life can sometimes get a little stressful. And trust me, I know it can sometimes be incredibly helpful just to talk things out. So why not get some personalized therapy that can then lead to a happier you? And did I mention our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash DizzyDish? That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Disney Dish. We thank them for sponsoring today's episode. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, Jim, we were talking last week about Epcot's Millennium Celebration, and we left off, I believe, um, with Disney implementing the West Coast version of innovations at Disneyland. And the Imagineer, whose name is Dobson, I believe? Terry Dobson. Dobson. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Goes out to Disneyland, opens it up, comes back, and finds the Millennium Celebration team waiting for him. What happens next? So this is the West Coast version of Interventions opens in July of 1998. Now, mind you, they've been working on their plan for Walt Disney World's Millennium Celebration since 1996. On the last show, we sort of delineated the stuff they were doing to try to make Epcot fan-friendly. But, you know, the thing that was supposed to get people to come into the park during the day was the Millennium Village. This is 96 going into 98. And by now, we've had our food and wine. We've had our flower and garden. We've just started, you know, holidays around the world. And what Epcot has learned is, yeah, these will drive attendance. But not in days when we have those gully washer Florida rainstorms. Sure. If we're going to do this thing for the millennium, got to be undercover. So we need a giant building that will house, you know, and in fact, originally they were talking about it. They wanted over 50 countries from around the globe to take part in this. And with the understanding that they wanted 50 countries that were not already on pavilions out around World Showcase Lagoon. Sure. This was supposed to be a temporary structure, a, a temporary festival. So, mm-hmm. you know, they were looking at a a 65,000 square foot tent. And 
there's nothing quite as permanent, you know, especially at Walt Disney World, than a temporary tent. <laughs> exactly. <You know. laughs> we we only have to look at Pete's silly side silly show. Silly side show, big top souvenirs, exactly. Who the where have been in place since 88 when Mickey's Birthday Land was first proposed. And I've read press accounts of this, how Mickey's Birthday Land was a temporary land. It was sure. only supposed to be there for a year. And then, you know, it was all going to go away. And, and But then it does all sorts of business. And yep. so did we say it would be gone for a year? We're, we're going to extend. So Mickey, and because Mickey's birthday land, the name doesn't work because the 60th anniversary celebration is over, becomes Mickey's Starland. It's now 1995 and it's mm-hmm. still open. <laughs> there is a moment, Len, in the holiday season of 1995 where November that same year Toy Story the first Pixar feature film comes out right. where for this weird moment Mickey's Starland suddenly becomes Mickey's Toyland and you could go down there and you could also you know, Mickey, Donald, Goofy and oh look our good close personal friends Buzz Lightyear and, and Woody but anyway January of 96 closes for six months gets redone as Mickey's Toontown Fair tents are still there still later. there yeah in fact if we jump ahead to 2011 we we have phase one of our new fantasy land and they flatten that side of the park it's all gone except the tents <laughs> except, the t- <laughs> except the temporary tents i think there's probably a little stamp on one of those tents that says uh you know uh, bulldozer impervious <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That, on, the, on the packaging, yeah. So uh, Terry Dobson, the gentleman in charge of the Millennium Village project, is kind of clued into this, that when you build a temporary tent, it maybe is not temporary. And, and more to the point, he's aware of a, an Epcot agenda, which we'll get to in a moment, mm-hmm. but with the notion of, well, maybe this temporary structure isn't so temporary. When they are building, the building that will house the Millennium Village, he gets some interesting things built alongside of this tent. First of all, is a giant professional permanent prep kitchen with a loading dock that's deliberately orientated out toward Epcot's perimeter road, which means that food and liquor deliveries are easy peasy. And then to the front of the structure, out toward World Showcase Lagoon, you get a giant permanent set of bathrooms built. This was accessible through a walkway that was built between the UK Pavilion and Canada. They gave up an expansion pad. Really? Another, a, a, UK, country, a, a UK expansion pad or a country expansion pad? A country expansion pad for oh. the walkway that would take you back. I mean, remember, that in order to build this giant building, they had to push out into the backstage area of Epcot. So the, right. the walkway, and it's like literally we are sacrificing the opportunity to put a country in here to get access to that giant tent back there. Mm. And then, of course, you know, you're building a, a building of size in central Florida. You need to keep it cool. So that building, if you look at aerial photographs of what we now call World Show Place, there are no less than six industrial size commercial use air conditioning units surrounding this thing. You know, they can get that building cold enough inside to hang meat in it. And then they rigged a set of sprinklers up on the roof of this tent. So every night, five to 10 minutes before Harmonious kicks off, oh, the, sprink- right, right. Yeah, sprinklers the sprinklers on the roof kick on yeah. to, to wet down the roof so that if a errant firework lands on the roof, it does not burn down the tent. But 
phase one of this project, the 65,000 square foot building, is, of course, to, to house the Millennium Village. Uh, but here's poor Terry Dobson. He's given his marching orders. I need 50 plus countries to take part in this. And in the end, as we start to roll into the fall of 1999, all Terry has been able to do is persuade 24 countries to come in. Yeah, so less than half or right at half of what he was supposed to get. Yeah. Part of that is there are countries that are eager. Scotland was one. I don't know if you remember their indoor miniature golf course that you could walk through that actually told you the, the about the scientific and technological innovations that had been created in Scotland. I missed that one. Is it beyond the steam engine? Uh, <laughs> James Watt? And then golf? <laughs> there we go. I mean, also, there, there was a virtual tour of the country that was hosted by poet Robert Burns, who it was like, do you understand anything this man's saying? I don't. I cannot, sorry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've tried to read Ulysses like everyone else. <laughs> there we go. It's a, you know, uh, that was James Joyce, but still. James Joyce, but... On the other hand, Sweden was reticent. It was like, do I, yeah, we want to participate, but we don't. do we have to actually spend money? You know, <laughs> I mean, we want to be there. And so the deal that Dobson cuts with Sweden is like, well, look, tell you what, I know you guys built that exhibit for Expo 98. You, you built the four seasons of Sweden. Where oh, Lenn this Bates was the, this was the elevated, uh, it was like, Plexiglass eggs, right? There we go. 30-foot-tall eggs where as, as you entered each of them, they recreated a specific season and a location in Sweden. But again, they had been built for the, the previous year's expo. Right. And the, normally Disney wants their own creative teams involved. And it's like, well, look, if it'll get you there, just bring the eggs. Okay, right. don't, don't tell anybody you showed them at the expo. I remember walking through the one was like tropical rainforest. There I think. we go. And I remember thinking... Taking in the entire exhibit, which again, 30 foot tall plexiglass eggs simulating mm -hmm. different biomes. I yeah. remember turning to my sister and thinking, are, are drugs legal in Sweden? Like, <laughs> is, that, is that how we ended up here? <laughs> Not probably the message that, uh, that Sweden wanted me to take out of that, but, mm -hmm. but okay. Well, speaking of, of messages that you probably didn't want to take out when you're going to the Millennium Village. <laughs> I know where you're going with this. I know. Okay. <laughs> well, look, anyone who's listened to the show that know that Len and I actually bonded over our love over the Journey to Jerusalem aspect of the Israel exhibition at the Millennium Village. And this was one of these situations where, where Mr. Jobson it was a difficult call yeah. because Israel was like, we want in, we want to be part of your thing and we will pay good money to be part of. Right. But at the same time, you know, they were like, well, we really, Disney's like, okay, we're happy to have you, but we do want creative input. We don't want anything controversial. This is supposed to be not political. This whole event is apolitical and it's, it's you know, we want to celebrate cultural diversity, yeah. you know, celebrate the future hand in hand, pal. You know, we don't want uh, people upset. And right from the get-go, Len, the very fact that the journey to Jerusalem attraction for the Millennium Village was it cost $8 million to produce, and $1.8 of that land came from Israel's foreign ministry, not tourism, foreign ministry. It was a hot button before the thing even opened up. The Arab League was just beside itself because it was, you know, the whole notion of like, no, Jerusalem is a holy city to a number of religions. and. Yeah. 
one I of mean, the Jerusalem was complained by both the Palestinians and the Israelis and has been disputed since the right after the end of World War II, right? Back when Israel was established as a country, yeah, right? In May of 48. Yeah. And this situation was not helped by a senior Israeli official who just prior to the opening of the Millennium Village pointed out that, look, Jerusalem is, of course, the center of Jewish dreams and Israel's existence. And this centrality is emphasized in the ride, which will soon begin operating at the Israel exhibit at Epcot's village. And again, that just upset the Arab League. And so there was this wave of bad publicity out ahead of the opening of Millennium Village, which, it's, by the way, that, that particular thing is contentious, right? And to this day. But it's worth noting that Disney tried to mitigate it by first bringing in Maya Angelou to speak uh, you know, at the opening. And then they actually brought in Kofi Annan, Secretary General of the UN, came to Orlando to celebrate the Millennium Village. And that's October of 99. The exhibit now runs through December of 2000. And then it's time for the Millennium Village to go away, which leaves us with this giant 65,000 square foot temporary building with its permanent kitchen and its permanent restrooms and its six industrial strength giant air conditioners. I mean, say what you will about the building. The air conditioning system is second to none there. Absolutely. I will invent reasons on a hot Orlando day to go in there. You know, I have to make a delivery, open the damn door. But you know where it really comes in handy, though, because during the period before Disney was using World Showplace mm-hmm. for food and wine events, mm-hmm. I would see corporate events and, and often wedding receptions held there. And if, and if you're in a suit, mm-hmm. it makes sense. If we're talking seriously about the, what the real agenda was for green lighting the Millennium Village, it was the notion to create a dedicated venue at Epcot for corporate parties and large weddings and and that sort of thing. And again, wow. you, know, you built a permanent professional kitchen you could use for catering. Yep. You built a permanent set of bathrooms right by the entrance exit, which again, if you're running a giant open bar prior to sending thousands of people out, you know, who've just come over from that day's set of classes at say the Dolphin of the Swan or the sure. Otten Beach Club, and they're still wearing their suit, A, they have a, you know, a place they can be at. And more to the point, as you mentioned, they're inside of this beautifully air-conditioned building. So being dressed in a suit really isn't an issue until you step out to World Showcase Lagoon and, and sweat to death. But you know what? If you uh, if you if you enter World Showplace in the mm-hmm. afternoon and you leave when it's dark after it's cooled off a little bit, eh. So you spend six hours eating and drinking in uh, in World Showplace in a well, suit. There, there are worse things. I don't know. I get that. But, but what's kind of interesting, and again, you can see this in the aerial photos. There's a bus turnaround there. Yep. You know, the way it used to work, Len, was that you'd finish your corporate event. They'd say, oh, by the way, you know, head downstairs outside of the convention center, get on the bus. We're going to go backstage at Epcot. You'd step off of the bus and go straight into World Showplace, into mm. you know, your catered event and all that. Oh, nice. But anyway, that started running as an actual venue in 2001-2022. As soon as they tore down the Millennium Village and cleared it out and then started making their corporate events and special events folks aware of it and they began selling it. But in 20 years, that means that a number of companies who, let's face it, companies love to hold corporate events and conventions at Disney World. But you've been down there now. It's 20 years. Your company has been back there three times, four times. It's like, yeah, they want to go somewhere different. Yeah. No, that's it. Exactly. Or or they need or they need something different. 
So this was why when we saw that first iteration of the plan for world nature, world celebration, and world discovery with our island of the, in the sky facility between the creation shop and uh, World Showcase Lagoon. Brilliant three-star design. You had your, your ground level plaza level where guests could literally walk under this building and make it straight to World Showcase Lagoon unimpeded. Mm -hmm. uh, second floor of the building was going to be the expo space. This is where you would go to attend classes during the day or presentations, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Whereas the rooftop garden on the third level with its elegant pathways and, and that sort of thing. Amazing view of all of Epcot World Showcase, as well as the, the various discovery, nature, and celebration. But at night, this was supposed to be for the folks who were tired of having their corporate events in World Showplace. This is where they were going to go to. This was the new place you were going to get to drink and eat. That's the other intriguing thing about the design for the expo level supposedly there was going to be not necessarily a dedicated, I mean, not a, a full-size professional kitchen like we had next door to World Showplace, but enough of a, a facility where you could, food could be trucked in and then could be through a system of ele elevators and such brought up to the expo level. And then as the party got underway, various hors d'oeuvres and drinks and that sort of thing, you know, they just elevated them up to the third level and, and begin distributing them. It was... It was a great plan, uh, but then the pandemic happened and then priorities changed. So that project is now off the table. We were talking just a, a few minutes ago early in the show about the new performance venue that's supposed to supplement the American Gardens Theater. Supposedly, that's now what they're selling to the various corporate groups. You know, the notion of, well, no, you want to go back to Epcot. We're building a brand new stage set up in, in World Celebration. And you, you'll be able to sit there and watch a musical group perform. And then the fireworks will shoot off over the lagoon. It'll be an amazing take-in. So that's where we are now. That I mean, World Showplace is still very, very much in play. And as you mentioned, food and wine events in, in there all the time. Yeah. And whatever they can get a corporate group. Uh, but at the same time, Disney's kind of had trouble with those these past couple of years. And it's understandable. I mean, you nobody's know, traveling. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's so traveling. Yeah. So they're, they're kind of rebuilding that business now. But it's, it's oh. the notion of, okay... What could we do with World Showplace to get people to want to come back to this? And right. that's where we are right now. It'll be interesting to see what uh, what develops between World Showplace and the uh, the back half of uh, Future World. There you go. Yeah, you we go. should know in a couple of years, though, right? Mm -hmm. They've they've put a billion dollars into Epcot over the last yep. three four years, and so that's the theme park side. The folks who are raising their hands saying, we need something new. We need something different. Right. The corporate events and the special events folks, you know, and it's like, you know, look, we, we drive a lot of revenue for this resort and yeah. you need, you need to deliver for us. So yeah, know, we need I, some, something new to sell. Yeah. There we sense. go. So mm -hmm. oh, it's fantastic. All right. Well, so we'll see what happens there. That'll be good. Okay. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please help support our show and Jim Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, and you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. The next Bandcamp exclusive is on how Tomorrowland became the land on the move. On next week's show, we'll have special guest Christina on to talk about everything from Victorian Albert's new menu to the opening of Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party. 
You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, whose alter ego, DJ Boneshaker, will be goading Matt Cardona to put his Internet Wrestling Championship on the line, as well as the Internet Go-Kart Championship of the World, at the first Wrestling Fan Fest from 6 to 9 p.m. on Friday, September 4th, 2022, at the Fair on 4, fourth floor at the Mall of America in beautiful downtown Bloomington, Minnesota. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.